evidently that's not very construction workerish to look okay. like one of the uh, the village people. Yes, that's uh-huh. the, that was my mental image was village people. Yeah, you know, I got I got a lot of comments on that, and so I did direct a <laughs> forklift with a little seventies dance, which okay. evidently was also not construction workerish. Yeah. So uh, it 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 slid for two days, and then I was asked to put my my shirt back on. So, <laughs> well, hey, at least you made it two days. I don't know that I would have lasted two hours before someone asked me to put a shirt on. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I'm right there with you on that one, dude. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, when it's hot, taking a layer of anything off is good. I, well, I really would have considered working in just my boots and my underwear if I could have. But that was against OSHA regulations. Well, you found a nice little loophole there, brother. That's that's, that's pretty good. It's pretty I good. Know. I still lost. So, anyway, <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, we're gonna take a break and come back. And Newton had an interesting thought with something in his world that we're gonna discuss. And then we have a great guest today. We're gonna be talking about guys and uh, why they don't like going to church. And we've got David Murrow here, so we're gonna bring him in and have a good conversation. So we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Light little steps on soft sacred sand Washing ways against what we planned A sifting of sorrow, a lifting of pain Toward every tomorrow, the wisdom of rain. Caught in the onslaught, the pleasure appears. On looks the one who treasures our tears. A magical moment, a mystery made plain. To find in each other the wisdom of rain. Let it fall and roll down your face. Well, we are back with our interesting thought for the week from Mr. Newton. Now, Newton, without being specific, since you're in the middle of trying sure. to deal with this wisely, uh, and in fact, I'm kind of curious not to even talk about the issue, but right. your issue with whether or not you were right for even dealing with the issue. So how can you explain that vagary uh, yeah. more clearly than I um, just did? <laughs> so uh, last night I was I was driving home from uh, from a run uh, <clears throat> and drove by a church that had, um, I guess I could just say a, a rather non-evangelical message on their marquee um and it, it really just it it literally it broke my heart to the point of tears I, I i actually got choked up as i was talking to my wife about it um it just it made me so angry because the the message um you know on on this five five lane road um just to to me was was the opposite of what needs to be on your your big church billboard um and so I, I talked with my wife about it for a bit. Um, had had really clear thoughts on it from the from the get go, and just couldn't just couldn't get it out of my mind. Um, so 
my my immediate thought was to do something really kind of sarcastic and um I don't know, snarky is the word that comes to mind. Uh, you know, put it on Facebook or or Instagram or something, a picture of this sign that says how not to do evangelism. Um and, and then I thought, you know what, all that's gonna do is is marginalize Christians even more. Uh all it's gonna do is is publicize this billboard that I have an issue with. And so rather than doing that, I think the Bible calls us to handle those things privately first. Uh, so I typed all my thoughts out, um, spent some time really reflecting on if I should contact the church, and I sent them a, what I what I hope is a, I don't know how it will be received, but what I hope is a, a well-thought-out biblical response to their marquee message board. Um, I sent it last night. Uh, as of as of this morning, I haven't heard anything back, and um, I also sent what I what I emailed to these guys. I sent to you know you guys and some other friends saying, "Hey, I had to respond to this. This is how I responded. Please correct me if I'm wrong somewhere. Please um, please instruct me if if I've missed something uh, or if I shouldn't have done something." Which, as I've thought about it this morning, was the wrong way to handle it. I should have asked for guidance first and then sent the message. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that, but that's what I did, and I've gotten feedback from, you know, from some brothers um, that, you know, that, that was encouraging. But you know, the most remarkable thing was is I was calling out this church uh, for their message, um, and I, I tried to do so in a, a respectful loving biblical way but as i did that i was made more aware of my own shortcomings and more aware of my own sin and more aware of my own desperate need for grace and it's almost like in trying to offer correction to someone else god used that to correct me uh and it was it's really been this kind of crazy 12 hours of reflection and thought on grace and mercy and uh, human interaction. Um, so it, it reminded me to some degree about uh, of the interview that you had, Aaron, a few weeks back with Jeff Chu. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I spent some time reflecting on that. So that's sort of, I don't know if that's any less vague, um, but that's I, kind of I, I think a little bit question, of a story. Yeah, your question early on, uh, I love the heart is when we go to exhort someone. I mean, we reprove, we exhort. Uh, You have to do it with that kind of humility where the Holy Spirit gets to bring you low enough to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. You can't do it as the judge over them. And that was such an interesting question in your email about judgment. Because so often we just go to the judge not lest you be judged. And we say, oh, Christians aren't supposed to judge. Well, it's more complicated than that, especially because the word judge means a number of different things in our language. Uh, Paul often writes to the church about their not being able to judge the things properly in Scripture and then talks about, don't you know you're going to judge the angels? I have no idea what that means. But he says, you have... (laughs) discernment. Right. But the kind of judgment we're not supposed to have is where it 
is closed. We 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 write the last chapter, and right. we then are the ultimate judge, which then brings condemnation. That's the kind yeah. of judgment that's different from having discernment and bringing truth. I was thinking when I uh, when you were talking about Philippians one when. Paul was writing the Philippian church about these other pastor types, church leaders that were slandering him. And he's trying to encourage the Philippians not to get all depressed about that. And he says that, yes, some of them are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry or strife, but others out of goodwill. And he says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, but what is it to me? I love that part. It's like, what does that have to do with me? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I'll rejoice. And it's an interesting twofold thing, because number one, he judged them. I mean, he said they're doing it for these reasons. So he's judging their motives with yeah. discernment. But He's not putting the end of the story on in his judgment. He's saying, you know what? Christ is bigger than anybody's stupidity. Paul's the first one to say that Christ works in him despite him. And so he's allowing for that to happen in other people. So he's saying, yeah, these guys are jerks. What's it to me? At least Christ is being proclaimed, and I'm going to rejoice in that. So I think that's the kind of judgment where he's not closing his eyes to the problem, but he's elevating how powerful God is in it to work in it. Yeah, and for me, I think the thing that that struck me, just it was like getting almost just cold water kind of in your face when I saw this sign. And it was just this very judgmental, harsh message. Um, my, My first thought was, our number one job as Christians is to be recruiters, you know, to to, to put off the the fragrance of Christ and to be attractive uh, to non-believers. Um, you know, we we should be signing, trying to sign people up left and right. And this sign um, makes my job harder as a Christian. Um, it makes their job harder, and it it just it makes it. It, it puts something forward, it puts something out there that just shuts down conversations. And I think that the best way for us to uh, evangelize and talk to folks isn't to, that you don't lead with that. You lead with God loves you so, so, so much. Um, and if that's all we preach, um, I, I think I think we're not doing something bad. Um you know, what, I think what you put outside to the non-believing world and what you talk about in your church, you know, to believers, I think it's different. I think it can be a different message. Um, and I think the Bible shows that. I think we see very few examples of judgment being passed on non-believers uh, as opposed to, yeah. you know, judgment being passed or being, you know, it's that discernment uh, where it's it's just, it's a different set of rules. It's a, I think it's a different set of standards, and it just it it bugged me enough that I wrote like a five paragraph paper <laughs> uh, about it. Um, but yeah, I just I think if we lead with love and we, if we lead with God's mercy, um, that's so much more attractive than leading with wrath and condemnation and and 
you're a bad person. Well, I'm glad that you are wrestling with this. I hope everybody is wrestling with the stuff that they see as they drive through their towns. We would be a better church for it. So that is awesome. And I think, I don't know, I'm hoping that that brings us to uh, some interesting conversations about how men step up to participate and what the church can do to uh, ignite some of that in men. So I am excited to come back with David Murrow and talk a little bit about that. So you think we should uh, take a quick break here and bring in David to add to this conversation? Yeah, yeah that's that sounds good. All right. Well, let's do it. Give me give me some of that Tom Waits action there. Come on, Hondo. Oh, you, <laughs> you went somewhere else. You, were, you had your finger on the button. Come on. Which one do you want? Me. Oh, I, I don't care anything. I just need some weights this morning. Give me rain dogs. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Here we go. Feminist on the planet, we 
are he-men woman haters. So, David, I think maybe you're totally off base. David, Merle, uh, welcome well, to the show. Thank you. Good to be with you. <laughs> so, was, there, was there a question in there, or was that just an angry feminist rant? No, that's not. I love my feminist sisters. Uh, so, David, give us a little background. I want to know how you came to write this book. I've I've read your uh, your bio, but it doesn't give me the the who you are and how you came to write books about what your husband isn't telling you and why men hate going to church. How did you get to that place? Oh. Well, I mean, it wasn't my design. Um, I'm a TV producer by trade, um, but a few years ago, uh, I was just sitting in church and realized that if my church was a TV show, it would not be on ESPN. It would be on the Oprah Network. It, uh, it was definitely female-oriented, everything from the words coming out of the pastor's mouth to the way the church was decorated with quilts and ribbons and banners and lace and the emphasis on love and beauty and communication and relationships. I realized, and then I looked at the leaders of the church. The uh, they were uh, the figureheads were male, but the people who really kept the church going were women. So I just began to realize that everything about church culture was kind of oriented toward gals. And every time I'd ever been with Christians, with the exception of Promise Keepers, was you know a predominantly female audience. So I did some research, and the research led to a book. The book led to a ministry. You can see, you can visit me at churchformen.com, and um, you know we're going strong. This is year number eight, and we're continuing to train uh, pastors and churches and leaders all around the world. Um, the book's been translated into ten languages. It's being used in seminaries around the world. So uh, the message is really getting out there that we need to be more cognizant of men and their needs within the church. Uh, or it's like my dentist. When I was a kid, my dentist had this plaque hanging on the wall that said, uh, ignore your teeth and they'll go away. And I think uh, that's kind of the philosophy that I have with men. If you ignore men, they will go away. And uh, we just need to be more aware of men and their unique spiritual needs and allow for those in the church. Well, Dave, tell me, tell me some of the statistics as you started the research. I mean, you had the impression that you did the research. What are some of the statistics that really shocked you enough to put so much of your life into this? Well, like everybody, you know, I had heard the things, like you said in the intro, that it's widely believed that church is male-dominated and you know, it's misogynistic and it, and it abuses women and discriminates against women. But when I looked into the facts, I found that the average church in America draws an adult crowd that's 61% female. Uh, about 90% of church employees are female when you, when you extract uh, senior pastors. Um, if you look at lay leaders, the leaders of the, the, the Sunday school, the choir, the music directory, so those are overwhelmingly female. The volunteer corps in many churches is 80% female. So, you know, we have this thin veneer on top, which we call the professional pastorate, but, and that's predominantly male, but every other aspect of, this, of, of Christianity is female-dominated. So, you know, so the reality on the ground doesn't, doesn't match what uh, people claim about the church. It is definitely female-oriented. Now, we don't want to say it's a bad thing that women are so involved. The bad part is, what is it that's keeping men from making those kind of commitments to their local community, their local body? Well, you know, you, you've said it. You know, female involvement is not a bad thing, but female dominance, sends a very strong message to men that they are unwanted and un unneeded. It's the get-out-of-my-kitchen syndrome. 
Uh, when a bunch of women take over the leadership of an organization, men quietly leave. And men sense, men can sense this when they walk into your average church, particularly older, more traditional churches. They see the way the place is decorated. They see the way it's run. They see the way decisions are made by consensus. They see the emphasis on relationships and the de-emphasis on mission. Or, you know, we talk a good game with mission, but we really don't do anything. Our biggest outreach of the year is to children. That's vacation Bible school. You know, and, and men can see, you know, that, that this is a this is a female-dominated, female-oriented institution, and they shy away from it. So if if and uh, well, so if we if we say that this is the problem, um, what are what are some of the solutions? Like, for example, what is a what would a church or what does a church for men look like? Well, uh, it's not a church for men so much as it is a church that's aware of men and is willing to meet the needs of men. Um, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit on the megachurch phenomenon. Uh, You know, a lot of people have studied the megachurch and they think, oh, you know, the reason the megachurch is so mega is because they're always headed by a gifted preacher. The music is contemporary. They've taken out the cross, you know, and all the religious symbols. No, no, you know what the real reason megachurches are growing? It's because they attract men. Um, megachurches have taken away a lot of the girly stuff that we did in traditional churches. They took away the lace doilies and felt banners. They've, they definitely do sermon series that are much more oriented toward the guys. I mean, the original two megachurch pioneers, Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, when they started their ministries about 35, 40 years ago, both of those men targeted a mythical male parishioner. In the case of Saddleback, his name was Saddleback Sam. In the case of Hybels and Willow Creek, his name was Unchurched Harry. Because both of those pioneers realized that the man was the first domino that had to fall. If you could get the guy in the door, you'd get the family as a bonus. But if you went for the women, uh, you'd never get the guy. If you went for the children, you'd rarely get the guy. So, so this is what... I mean, this is what a church for men does. A church for men goes after the guys, not overtly. I mean, the pastor doesn't stand up and say, hey, guys, you're welcome, and you women and children, be quiet. But but what he does is he creates an environment where men feel affirmed or men feel needed. He preaches the gospel in such a way that the men can relate to it. It's not all just about hugs and kisses and relationships and all these sorts of things. It's about mission. It's about struggle. It's about he uses the language of men. And then he just sits back and watches his church grow. I mean, it's really as simple as that. When Jesus started the church, he went out and found 12 dudes, and that's really what the, the megachurches have done, and that's the main reason they are you know, kicking the tail of the smaller traditional churches, is because they have created an environment where young men want to go. It's, it's interesting. In this conversation, I know there's been, over the last 15 years, kind of a resurgence of a lot of men's focused ministries and activities and conferences that are outside of the church about reclaiming manhood and masculinity and, and all of that. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you think about some of those programs and emphases and why they are outside of the church. Well, I think uh, it was about 23 years ago that uh, Coach Mack, founded uh, Promise Keepers, and that really exploded onto the scene. That revealed a need that was being unmet. 
It was in 1989 that Robert Lewis held the first men's fraternity meeting at the Razorback Gym in Arkansas, and that's exploded into an international um, international ministry for men. So we're just seeing the reason we're seeing these things is because there's a need. It's meeting a need in in the church. It's meeting a need in the in the in the hearts of men. And I think overall, a lot of these things have been good. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, criticism of promise keepers, you know, or they've said, well, you know, it was a flash in the pan. You know, I know a lot of guys who really got a lot of good out of that. It was the first time they'd ever been in a worship setting with a lot of men. Uh, It was the first time they'd ever had an opportunity to be in an accountability group or a Bible study group and be real. So, you know, I definitely wouldn't throw stones that way. I think think PK served its purpose. and then, you know, movements like your own, you know, Pirate Monks and some smaller groups. Are, uh, there's another one, uh, oh, shoot, the name escapes me right now, but it's about men getting together and getting real. And, and these things are tremendously helpful, and we need more of those sorts of things. I mean, you, you said, what's a church for men? That's really a church for men, is these opportunities for men to get together and be real. I suppose part of the question, and probably points to the problem, is, most of the things that you're describing are, again, outside of the church. They're parachurch, mm-hmm. they're supplementary, and translating it back into the church hasn't seemed to have been long-term successful. So I remember Promise Keepers had all the stuff for doing Bible studies, that, but if it doesn't come back to the local church, it, it won't last uh, as a movement for men until it gets brought home. So is that just, why is it so difficult? Is it because uh, pastors feel uncomfortable or threatened, or why why are they all outside of the church? Well, I think church is what it is. Um, as much as we like to say that the church is a, is a mission organization, it's primarily a preaching and music presenting organization. I mean, that's, that's what 80% of our time on Sunday morning is, is presenting a, a monologue sermon and a... Uh, in a musical presentation. It's a stage-driven form of Christianity. And so, and, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, we need, we need more stage-driven Christianity. But the problem is getting from stage-driven to life-driven and mission-driven. And it's very hard for churches to get that life-driven and mission-driven stuff into the lives of, their, of the believers who go to church because 80% of the believers who go to church are going for the stage show. They're going for the sermon. They're going for the music. So it's not just men's ministry. It's all sorts of ministries that we really try and earnestly try to graft onto the church. These are all having, they're all struggling, and they're all, a lot of them are failing because people are, they go to the stage show, and that's all they want to do. I mean, I really want to put the onus on the people here. Uh, it's not for a lack of trying. Um, now, you identified, you know, some pastors do feel threatened by their men. I think they're the, the minority. I think most pastors would love to have more men in their church. But... Uh, you know, men's ministry hasn't worked in the past. That's the other thing. Uh, about 80 to 90% of men's ministry programs that are launched in local churches fail within two years. Um, and the reasons for that are many. I think a lot of men's ministry programs are simply, well, they're built on two basic models. One is the, the uh, church light model, where we get guys together, sing a few songs, and then hear a sermon from a men's teacher. Or the second model would be the small group Bible study model, where we get together uh, there's a bowl of chips in the middle of the table. We read from God's Word. We answer questions. We look up passages and books. 
Now, both of these methods are valid. They work for some guys. But for your average guy, what he's looking for is something more raw and real and challenging. And um, I'm actually developing a model uh, called Men's League. I don't know if you've been to that website. I've got a website called mensleague.org where I'm hoping to create a new model of men's ministry that really has not been seen in the church in thousands of years. It's based not so much on pedagogy and teaching from books as it is from leading men through a series of experiences and challenges. And then at the end of each challenge, men are allowed to talk about, you know, how they reacted to it and stuff like that. So we get to the heart of the matter quickly because we've challenged them physically. So, um, so give, give me an example of one of these challenges. What, what would that look like? Well, here's the thing. I really can't because if I do, um, if I tell you an example of one of these challenges, then I have just spoiled the challenge for you. Because cause here's the thing. When I look at how Jesus dealt with his men, he was constantly misdirecting them. He was constantly mystifying them. And he was constantly putting them out of control and taking control himself. The examples being, okay, there's 5,000 hungry men. The disciples come to Jesus and say, these dudes are starving to death. And what does Jesus say? Ah, step back, I'll solve this problem. No. He says, you feed them. (laughs) It's just like, what? All we got is this one lunch bucket. What are we going to do? He says to the disciples, you go across the lake and I'll meet you on the other side knowing full well he's going to walk out in the middle of a storm that night on the water and terrify them. Jesus was always messing with his men in this way. And I think the, the way we do damage to men in the church with men's ministry is we put the sage on the stage who tells men and spoon-feeds them the truth and tells them what to think, which is good to a point, but it doesn't allow them to figure it out for themselves. It doesn't place the man... Uh, out of control of his own situation. So what I want to do with Men's League is lead them through a series of challenges. I want to take them to junkyards. I want to take them to community centers. I want to take them to to the outside of a strip club. I want to take them to high-pressure situations where they have to make the call. And they might make the wrong decision. And then I want want us to come back together and talk about it and, and deal with the the, the pressure that I put them under in that unusual situation that they were not expecting and see what God does. Instead of just spoon-feeding, well, in Isaiah 40, 31, it says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to tell them what to think. I'm going to depend on the Holy Spirit to do that. And so that's why I'm so excited about Men's League is because I think it has a potential to really, to, if, you, if you lead a man through a lesson with his whole body and you put him under pressure and he doesn't know the answer and there's nowhere to look it up, and you just have to rely on God, I'm thinking that's going to have a pretty profound impact on men. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, you are speaking the language of the way Jesus taught his closest, for sure. And I yeah. think you're right yeah. in saying there is a place for the stage, because Jesus took the stage and spoke to lots of people from the stage, but with the... Um, discipling in a very different way. So I, I think that that is great. I can't wait to see what you come up with because I remember and I, you I'd like to see oh sorry. <laughs> I'd like to see how you advertise taking the men's group to a strip club at church. <laughs> well, but that's um, the thing. It, here and here's the other thing. The way I would recruit for men's league is 
you know, typically what we'll do is when we recruit for men's ministry, we put an insert in the bulletin, we stand up in the pulpit, and we say, hey, we got a men's thing coming up. We announce it, right? With men's league, you don't do that. Why? Because Jesus didn't announce, hey, I've got 12 openings for apostles. Anybody interested? What, what he did is he went out into the marketplace and he met with men. And so, I mean, here's what I'm hoping to do. I'm up in Alaska right now. There's not a lot going on up here with as far as men's ministry goes and churches that are kind of leaning into men's ministry. So what I'm hoping is in the fall of 2014, I can find a church that will bring me on staff. And what I want to do is a traditional men's ministry. I get up, I'm the sage on the stage, and I talk to guys. But then during the week, I'm meeting with individual men over coffee, over lunch, over barbecue, over cigars, whatever. And I'm just sizing them up. And then at the end of that year of meeting men, I'm going to be calling. I'm going to, just like Jesus said, I'm going to pray intently. He prayed all night. And then in the morning, I'm going to call 12. And I'm going to give 12 men an opportunity to have this incredible adventure for one year. I'm going to, I'm going to call them up and I'm going to say, look, I've met with 300 guys this year. And out of those 300, I chose you. Now, that's, that's what Jesus basically did with his disciples. Remember, he called all of his disciples together and from among them chose 12. I want to make this guy feel amazingly special. I'm going to say, look, I met with 300 guys this year. From among these 300, I chose you because I see something in you and I want to pull uh, and I see faith in you and I want to sharpen that faith. And so for a year, you're mine. I'm going to develop you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to make you hate me. I'm going to tear you down and rebuild you into the man God wants you to be, uh, what I believe God wants every one of us to be. So here's my call. I want you to meet me you know, at a certain place. There's going to be 12 other guys. There's going to be 11 other guys, and we're going to lead you through a series of adventures. I'm going to ask you to do this once. You have 48 hours to decide. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But if you decide not to, you need to tell me within 48 hours because I've got 300 guys who want to take your spot. Now, let me ask you guys, have, have that, has anything like that ever happened to you in the church? Have you ever been chosen? Have you ever been called by a man who wants to invest in you? So I think you uh, know the answer to that. <laughs> oh, you've got one new Yeah, I mean, I, I, w- I would say, I mean, for, for me, not, not directly and not, and not in that way, but, I've, but I have had other men in our church, I would say, invest in me. Um, and what, what I kind of think of as men, mentor me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, so, it, and, it's, and it's great, you know. Um, and it's great, exactly. But, but what, yeah. what's happened is because we've made every invitation in the church what I call an, an open chair or empty chair invitation, hey, we've got a bunch of guys getting together. Uh, if you'd care to join us, if they, it's, you know, it's at 7 p.m. on Monday night. We're going to smoke cigars and barbecue and talk about God. You know, you know that's great. That's kind of loosey goosey. It's kind of low barrier to entry. But never in my I'm I'm 52 years old. Never in my walk with God have I ever had a believer come up to me and say, David, I see something in you, and I want to call that out. And that's what Jesus did with his men. He did not choose 136 guys. He chose 12 guys, and he singled them out. And he poured his life into those 12. He didn't pick 11. He didn't pick 13. There was 12. And, and I think men are dying. They are dying for that father figure to come into their lives and say, I see something in you, and I want to invest in you, and I want to draw it out. 
And they're looking for that coach, that drill sergeant, that, that man who will come into their lives and pull that out. And that is unavailable in the church today. It cannot be found because we use feminine methods, which is the empty chair. We're always welcome. Come on in any time. If you're not here, we won't bother you. Uh, boy, if you don't show up for Men's League, I'm going to bother you. You're going to have me and 11 guys blowing up your cell phone, texting you, uh, you know, calling you names. We're going to get you back. So it's, it's, tip, it's no men left behind. It's small. It's intense. And I think it has the potential to transform men's lives in a way that nothing else that I've seen can do. It's interesting, uh, the way you were talking earlier when you were uh, kind of giving an example of how you would call a man out. You were using a lot of coach language, and the intensity is, it really is coach and drill sergeant kind of language. And that, I think there's a lot of people that don't understand the power of that. It It's a really... It's hard for us to step up into the authority that God gives us as older men called to walk with other men because authority has been abused so much by the church. So a lot of people don't trust a person with that authority, with good intentions and really conspiring for my uh, connection with Jesus. But that intensity is so good and so necessary for many men what do you do with a guy, though, that uh, that intensity really brings out some fear and some brokenness? So what if one of your 12 guys just really doesn't get that language? Well, I mean, it's a certainty that you will lose some guys. I mean, even Jesus lost one. So, um, yeah, and, you know, you're right. It there It is. It has probably been associated with abuse, particularly in Pentecostal circles. Um, there was the whole shepherding movement, the idea that I'm recovering and all that sort of thing. And that's led power-hungry individuals to abuse others. And um, I think one of the things that's going to keep Men's League accountable, uh, and if you go to mensleague.org, you can see the whole diagram of everything here, but you don't put one man at the center of this league. You put three at the center of the league. I looked very intently at how Jesus structured his inner circle. Yes, he had 12 men, but he also had three who were his inner circle. Can you tell me their names? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Now, these three represent the three elements of a man's personality. Uh, James was the mind, Peter was the will, and John was the emotions. He had a, he had a, a ramrod will guy, Peter. Come on, let's take that hill. He had James. Hmm, let's think about the doctrinal aspects of that. And he had John. Let's just love one another, right? He had all three of those represented in his inner circle. At the, at the core of men's league, you need those three personalities. Now, I'm a mind. I'm an analyst. I write books. And I'm, I'm realizing that I'm going to need a ramrod. I'm going to need a guy who really knows how to take a hill. And I'm going to need a guy who's going to pull me back and say, David, how can we be more loving here? Because if I just go in with my mind, I'm going to end up creating a discipleship program that stimulates the mind. And that's good, but that's what every other discipleship program on earth already does. So I have to have this balance. And I think if you put these three guys at the center of your league, you run much less risk 
of one abusive person going out and abusing his authority because you've got accountability between the three uh, what I call commissioners. I, with men's league, I use a sports analogy. Commissioners are at the center. They train 12 coaches, and then uh, those 12 actually train 72 because, remember, after Jesus trained the 12, he sent out 72 more. So the total yield of men's league is 72 plus 12 plus 3, 80, 87 men uh, who are all in an active discipleship. Now, if you had that going on in your church, if you had 87 men who were all in active discipleship, all with two leaders and one uh, fellow uh, disciple or whatever, I think you'd have a rich honeycomb of male relationships with, that would transform the church from the inside out. Yeah, I like I like that there's three guys so that one doesn't become a dictator, but I also like you're talking about honoring different kinds of personalities within that leadership structure, and that's, that's a really, really important big deal. I think that is the thing that yeah. will keep the man around who doesn't connect with one guy's language or style, he'll connect with one of the other guys. Well, and here's the thing, too. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna take the approach that uh, you can quit any time. There's the door. Um, you remember in John chapter six when Jesus said, "Unless you drink my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no part of me." It, the Bible says that at that point, every one of his disciples left him. That was an extremely offensive teaching to the Jews. And he's down to the 12. And the 12 come to him and they say, Lord, all your disciples have left. And he turns to the disciples and he looks at them and he says, oh, gosh, thanks, guys. I mean, I was really sweating it there, all those disciples leaving me. I'm really thankful that you've stayed around. Gee, thanks a lot. That's what he said, right? No. He turns to his disciples and says, do you want to leave me also? In other words, look, there's the door. And and I, I think... Again, we have this empty chair. Oh, everyone's welcome. Everybody come. We're all so happy to have you here. Thank you for coming to our church. That's our attitude. Yet the attitude of Jesus was, it is a privilege to serve me. It is a privilege to be in the kingdom of God. And if you want to leave, there's the door. I've, I can find, I can raise more disciples out of the stones. And, and, you know, again, this is something men never experience in the church. They never experience the the king side of God. They experience God as a lover. They experience him as a comforter. But they never experience him as a king. And, and I think we, it's incumbent upon us as disciple makers that we need, we need to show men how that Jesus is a king and that he does not need our puny efforts. He wants our love, but he will not bend over backwards to get it. You know what I'm saying? He's, he, he is who he is. And so a little bit of imperious you know, behavior, I think, with some some uh, spoiled, rotten men, I, I think that could actually be a positive thing. I'll get them chasing after Jesus a little more, if that makes sense. Yeah, that leader has yeah. to be incredibly sensitive to the Holy Spirit, for sure, because that is a uh, such an important part of leadership and one of the most delicate ever to make sure that you're stepping into that kind of conversation when the Spirit's leading versus just using bullying as a tool, which is effective, I know. I'm a bully. So <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I resonate with what you're saying, both in the spirit and in my flesh. You think, oh my gosh, that is so powerful and so dangerous. And that's makes it beautiful. That's a beautiful journey. Yeah. yeah, and 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 we have to go there. That's the thing. I mean, we can continue to deny men 
God's harsh side, and we can just say God is love, 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 you know, just preach the John Gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, and we will continue to create a Christian veal, you know, well, boneless, you know, spineless Christian men who just, they just, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a third, my third book is called The Map, The Way of All Great Men, and I deconstruct the life of Jesus into lion and lamb and kind of explain how we really over-present the Lamb of God and we under-present the Lion of Judah. And I present a healthy way that we can um, give men both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. And here's the thing. If you present the the Lion of Judah, you will lose people. Jesus always, always lost disciples. He always angered people. And we see that as a tremendous loss. But it's not. I mean, it's just it's part of the gospel. Jesus came to divide. And unless we're willing to go there, and we're willing to... And this is why you can't do this in a men's ministry. It's because the minute people start leaving the church, you get hauled into the senior pastor's office. Hey, I've had four complaints about you. What's going on? Well, I'm just trying to be faithful to the gospel. Well, if you were faithful to the gospel, more people would love Jesus, not less. You know, And, and then you start having that conversation about giving and tithing and... Before you know it, you're out on the street looking for a job. Yet you're doing exactly what Christ would have done and what what you're doing. And what the pastor can't see, all he can see is those four people who complained. He can't see the 36 men who are absolutely on fire for Christ because you finally started treating them like men. You finally started trusting the Holy Spirit. You finally stopped spoon-feeding them the truth, and you put them in charge of their own spiritual growth. but But the pastor doesn't see that. He's, he's trained to respond to complaints. And, you know, this isn't a rap on pastors. This is any CEO of any organization. They, we train them to, to respond to complaints. And so that's why you asked, why is it so hard to get a men's ministry going in church? I can get a men's ministry going in church as long as we never confront anybody. You know, that's easy. I, if we want to just study the book of Habakkuk for the rest of our lives, we can do that. The problem is getting a transformative men's ministry. And if you want to transform men... You have to introduce the Lion of Judah and not just the Lamb of God. Is that making sense? Yeah. Yep. Well, it seems like it seems like there's, it's a really delicate balance. To what, what I hear is that so much of this needs to happen outside of a church setting, but at the same time, it needs to be uh, fostered and endorsed by a church. Um, how does it? How can a church? I mean, kind of in practical ways. How can a church, or how can men in a church, start fostering these concepts and start and start developing this? Um, because it seems like there's it, they, it seems tough uh, to to stand up on a, on a stage on a Sunday morning and say, "Hey guys, we want to we want you to come to this so we can kind of kick your teeth in a little bit because you need it." But well, at the same well, time, okay. it's, you know, it's, it's got to happen. No, no, okay, you're already off track because you would never stand up in front of the church and invite men to this. The, the key to doing this sort of discipleship is it has to begin with a personal invitation sure. from a man who already knows you. If, you. if you invite men from the front to attend something where we're going to kick your teeth in, what are you going to do? You're going to have, you're going to have a disaster because there's no relationship. Rod Cooper said, correction without relationship equals disaster. Okay? Right. So, so, but if I have sat down with a guy across the table and had bought him coffee, 
hurt his life, hurt his story, hurt his, his, his ambitions and aspirations. He knows a little bit about me. And then I call him later and I say, look, I was really impressed by your conversation. I see something in you. And I want, to, I want to invite you into one extraordinary year of discipleship. You will be my disciple, and I will be fa- if you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you, right? That is a completely different game, ball game at sure. that point. Because yeah, there's trust I, I guess there. my question is, yeah. is more, I guess it sounds like it's a church program that's not a church program. Like it, it, it's it plays, almost contra church. It, it flies under the radar, and it has okay. to fly under the radar because... You know, because if you're if you're leading twelve men through it, you're going to lose one. Jesus lost one; you're going to lose one. There's going to be one complainer, one guy who grumbles, one guy who's a pastor. You need the senior pastor of the church and the leaders of the church need to understand from the beginning that you're, and this is the, that you're all going to have to agree that there are going to be acceptable losses. If you go into this with the idea that not one sheep can be lost, you're lost. This will never work uh, because you have to accept at at you have to accept Jesus at his word that he came to divide. He came to divide sheep and the goats. And there's going to be a goat in every group. And no matter how you handle it, somebody's going to go away mad. It's just how these things work. Um, when you really start serving and following Jesus, somebody gets mad. So if you choose your disciples carefully and you choose your 12 carefully, you should be able to get 11 of them through the year. Um, but you're going to have a defector. So, so the important thing is to have the church leaders and the church pastor on board and say, okay, we're going to accept that this is radical, that you're really trying to inculcate something different in these men, and we are willing to accept a little bit of complaining on the part of the men who drop out. Because men will drop out. It's going to be hard. When you tell a man that he's got to be out at 10 o'clock in a rainstorm, that's hard. Guys are going to want to... Sure. Complain about that. When you drop a guy sure, off sure. twenty miles away, he's gonna. There's gonna be complaints. But 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 what the men have to understand from the beginning is okay. Let me go back to film. Okay, John Eldridge always goes to film. I'm gonna go to film for a second. Um, the films that we men adore and love always feature a student who is taken under the wing of an eccentric teacher. And that eccentric teacher leads them through a series of challenges, the fruit of which they do not understand until the fight begins. The examples I would give would be the Karate Kid. Remember that? Everybody likes the Karate Kid, right? The Karate Kid finds this crazy Japanese guy named Mr. Miyagi who catches flies with chopsticks. Now, the Karate Kid is getting whipped. He's getting killed by bullies. The bullies are representative of the devil. Mr. Miyagi takes the Karate Kid under his wing and teaches him to do three things. What are they? Paint the fence. Uh, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off, sand the floor, <laughs> right? He leads right. him through these series of these seemingly meaningless adventures, right? But then when the fight comes, he's ready. So... The, the key here is that I'm going to lead these men through a series of what they believe are meaningless adventures. They cannot understand what the purpose of me dropping them off 20 miles from town is. They can't understand what's standing outside of a strip club having to decide whether they're going to go in or out. They don't understand what's going on. But at the end of the year, Mr. Miyagi reveals 
what was going on. And it's exactly what Jesus did with his men. Up until the Last Supper, they still don't understand what's going on. And then at Pentecost, it's all revealed. So what I'm saying is this story is written on men's hearts. They are all looking for their Mr. Miyagi. They are all looking for their Yoda. They are all looking for their Jesus. They are looking for this man who will take them through a mysterious series of adventures that will take them to a place they do not understand exists. And that's what Men's League is about. It's about taking men, getting them off balance, getting them out of control. Because in church, you're in control. You can get up and walk out any time. In a Bible study, you're in control. As long as you've got a Bible in your hand, you know what to do. If you go to Men's League, you're not in control. God's in control. Because you don't know what's coming next. And I think this sort of discipleship could really... I mean... Why are the Mormons so effective at retaining their man? Because, because for two years, every young Mormon man is out of control. He's on a bicycle. He's wearing a white shirt. He's sharing the gospel with people that don't care about it. Uh, and for two years, these guys are out of control, and, and they become rabid followers of Joseph Smith and the Mormon church because they're out of control. In the church, men are always in control, and we've got to get them out of control so God can be in control. Does that make sense? Yeah. Makes sense. Well, where... Where can people uh, take a look at your books and your websites? And your website, your main one is churchformen.com, right? Yeah, ch- right. Churchformen.com is the main website. Um, mensleague.org is the prototype site that I launched a couple years ago. Just I have not actually done Men's League. It's still in the planning and thinking stages. I'm still looking for a church that, is, that has the guts to bring me on and is willing to try this. Um, but uh, it'll be further refined in 2014, in the fall of 2014. I'm trusting God to find a church that will allow me to do this, and uh, it will be ready. It will be ready to roll out on a more nationwide basis, presuming God blesses it and it works in 2016. So those are the main sites that you want to go to: is churchformen.com, and then uh, if you if you're interested in Men's League, it's mensleague.org. Okay, and where can they pick up hey. your book? Books, plural. Uh, the books, the books. The books are available at Amazon, ChristianBook.com, anywhere books are sold, Barnes and Noble. And then, if you want to help my ministry, I'm, uh, I sell them, uh, autographed copies on my website, ChurchForMen.com. If you go to that address, uh, we can um, we can get you fixed up with an autographed book. All right. Well, David, it Great. has been a pleasure hearing your ideas. You're a man whose brain is always going, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's uh, it's kind of a liability sometimes, but I appreciate you guys listening. No, it was, it was good to hear your heart, and I hope that uh, yeah. you've given some guys some good stuff to think about. I know you have. So thank you for your time, and I am looking forward to uh, people checking out your stuff. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks right, so much. And we will be right back here on the Pirate Monk Radio Show. Well, I'm up and I'm down and I'm all around and I'm okay If you ask me because we don't really take the time To care or like we could I could trip, I could fall, you won't know it all Because your busyness is blinded We don't really have the time To love like we should And it always goes back down to the way that we love and it always comes down to the way that we love 
great interview and we appreciate David's time uh, speaking of time I think we are about out of time uh, so we'll wrap up please connect with us on Twitter Facebook all those social media ways that you hear us talk about every week uh, hope you will tune in for next week's uh, next week's episode where we talk more with the guy that is not on the bio that I have in front of me so uh, next week, <laughs> tune in at 1130 Central. Guest. Yes, our super secret guest, tantalizing yeah. super secret guest. Yeah. Um, so and you know when you get a bird of super secret sauce, you expect good things. <laughs> the exact same. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. So, make sure uh, make sure you guys uh, email us too at uh, uh, samsonpodcast at gmail dot com or powermuckradio at gmail dot com as well. Yeah, thanks for that, Mondo. So on behalf of Aaron and Mondo and our awesome executive producer, Jay, and the absent Nate, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Pirate Monk Radio. Arc. Give yourself.